0: Welcome to the Wellness Pie Shop, where each episode we cut into a different slice of wellness to examine how our values and resilience nourish our daily lives. With the help of special guests and our own brand of irreverent insight, we'll dive into some of the ingredients that make up the whole of each of our wellness pies. We're your hosts, Dina Searden and Samaya Ding Lawson. Thanks for joining us. Now let's grab a cup of tea, sit back, relax, and join this week's discussion at The Wellness Pie Shop. Welcome to The Wellness Pie Shop. On today's episode, Samaya Ding-Lawson and I are talking with Kara Allen. Kara is a licensed clinical social worker in private practice in San Diego. She specializes in grief, oncology, relationships, sex, and the many places that those intersect. Kara spent many years working in healthcare, was the outpatient therapist for a cancer center, and the chief clinical officer for Experience Camps, a national bereavement camp for children and teens. In addition to her master's in social work, Kara has a master's degree in management and extended training from the University of Michigan's sex therapy certificate program. She lives with her partner of 11 years, and their two elderly dogs, loves starting clubs, and tries to find any excuse to celebrate. Welcome. Hello, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Now I'm reading this bio and I'm like, you love starting clubs. Like, are you a dance fiend? Just (laughs) (laughs) what kind of
1: clubs do you tell? Do you tell?
2: So I, uh, the most prominent is probably the book club. I started about 11 years ago. We are still going strong, but over the years I have started supper clubs. I have started craft club. Um, I just really enjoy getting people together.
0: And how has that worked with COVID?
2: So book club went virtual for a bit of time. We're now back together in person and everything else is kind of on hiatus. They, they ebb and flow.
0: Gotcha. Well, that's a very impressive resume. And once again, I'm struck by the fact that, you know, (laughs) it's not very professional. (laughs) Oh, anyway, Kara, as you probably know, the wellness pie shop is all about talking to people about their values, kind of how they came to learn about their values or learn about values in general. And I'm going to just ask you right out, like, what would you define as your top couple of values?
2: So I was thinking about this, and I think there are kind of two dimensions to my values. One is the foundation, right? The values that I was kind of taught and that were modeled for me when I was young. And the next is the things I kind of came to in adulthood through my career, through my experiences, through my life. So I would say the foundation for me is really a sense of contribution, service, community. So kind of going out into the world and doing good things. And then that the thing I came to as an adult, and this will sound familiar to you as social workers, is that idea of informed consent. And while I appreciate that that is not a typical value, I think that I really feel strongly, and it's kind of a driving force for my professional life and my personal life, that people deserve to have information that is accurate, that is open, that is direct, to allow them to make decisions about their own lives and what they want to do, don't want to do with that with that information.
0: I love the way you broke that out. It was the foundational stuff and then the, how you grew into your values as a professional, as a social worker?
2: I come from a line of people in service professions, right? My grandparents, I remember stories growing up of my grandfather who post-depression had a grocery store and would keep a tab for the families who were struggling but still needed food. Right, so they could come in and get what they needed and know they could pay when they had the money. My other grandfather was a teacher. My parents were both teachers. My brother is a nurse. Right, we just there is this very consistent threat in our family of kind of giving back and wanting to be a, a part of the community and in um, service.
0: That's great. At first, when you were talking about how you come from a long line of of folks who you know would give back to the community and stuff, I was thinking, gosh, you know. I can't say that my grandparents, but my, you know, my grandfather was a teacher. However, it's not like those are the kinds of things that were instilled in me as a child. My friends take out their kids to go volunteer at Thanksgiving and all those kinds of things. And it sounds like you kind of had a similar background, right? Versus those of us who just kind of did their thing not that we weren't raised with any values or morals or whatever but it was it was just sort of more open i guess i'm not really sure how you would say it
2: sure um yeah i was incredibly fortunate right and i always i describe my parents as doers mm-hmm. and that whole do as i say not as i do kind of was was not the case in oh. in our house right i they they really lived i think that that belief. And I saw that on such a constant basis. Mom, PTA, all the things, right? They were just so involved. And the first ones, right, to start the meal train when someone died, the first ones to kind of jump in as as helpers in so many different ways. So I, I, I don't think it would have been possible for me to turn out any other way, given kind of the lives that they've lived and continue to live. They are still out there volunteering in their 70s um and multiple organizations it's really it's incredible the the legacy i think of that
0: really, that's great we see we need more of that in the world right
2: that's kind of what they always said so yeah. it was like do something that makes you happy as long as it will like do something good in the world
1: <laughs> yeah no that's good so what's so cool about that is they weren't telling you, this is what you need to do. They just were showing you through their own modeling and their own experience. to so actually that's what it, what it looks like, you know, giving back to your community and being connected. They showed that through how they just did their own service. Absolutely. The values that you sort of grew into. Can you speak to that
0: a little bit more?
2: Yeah, I can. And I think this gets a little murkier. <laughs> we <laughs> love murky
0: I- here. I <laughs> is good.
2: Well- Good. Me too. Me too. It's that gray area, right? I, that I look. I think I have always enjoyed talking about the things that people struggle to, the things that kind of societally have been set to the side and that people are uncomfortable, with, right? So grief, cancer, sex, so things that most of the time, right? people kind of stumble around and it feels so strongly that we need to talk about those things. We need to have have those things on the table. We need to be able to share information openly to give people an opportunity to make the choices that are right for them based on that information.
0: I mean, I think you're absolutely right there. I'm just wondering how you, how did you come by that? I mean, what, what happened that you said one day, you know what, I am so sick of not talking about this stuff. So I
2: think a part of this came from my work in healthcare right? So I was in healthcare for 14 years. Mm -hmm. Certainly being a social worker in the medical model is a challenge in and of itself. We don't always align in the same way that other professions, physicians or nurses or other professionals, we don't always engage in the same way with our patients. And I think one of the things I saw happening was people were feeling challenged, being open about things that were difficult to talk. And they were allowing their own discomfort to get mm-hmm. in the way of sharing the information that needed to be shared. So mean I mean, the, the physicians things- and
0: the nurses and yeah, the professionals. Yes. Okay.
2: Yeah. And I think the, 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 the clearest example is end of life. Right. I do a lot of families who are grappling with that decision making at end of life. And so often I would hear, but I don't want to, I, I don't want them to not have something to hope for, right? As I was advocating, we need to let them know.
1: Mm-hmm. We need to
2: let them know that this is coming. We need to let them know that the prognosis is weeks, not months. We need to give them the opportunity to have the conversations they want to have, to make the decisions about the quality of the the end of their life that they want. And those conversations were really tough for a lot of those professionals to have. And often they didn't have them in what I believed was the timely enough time, right, to give those back is the the things that they needed. So that was a big part of my work there. It was advocating for those conversations Mm -hmm. um, and realizing, wow, this is hard for people even people who work in this field and there needs
0: to be more, more openness. Uh, Yeah, uh, I worked in hospice, excuse me. I worked in hospice for seven and a half years. And I would say, you know, that was my job as a social worker was to go in, have those conversations. I can't tell you how many times we would sign up families or be directed to go sign up families. And we would be told, don't tell the patient, Mm. don't tell the person that you're signing up for hospice that we're signing. I don't want them to think that we're giving up. I don't want them to think that I don't love them or that I'm just waiting for them to die, mm-hmm. right? And I will say for myself that in seven and a half years, I did it. I didn't like it though. I It was still hard for me on that very last day to have those conversations. Do you feel that way? Or do you think that has come more naturally for you now?
2: I think it comes more naturally for me now. And I think it's why I count this as a value because I feel so strongly, that it needs to happen. And it is an incredible gift that we can give someone to be able to to guide them and give them that information. And that that information is power, right? Information is control. Information is being able to make a decision um, versus allowing something to just kind of happen to you and helping families understand that. Right. I love that aspect of it to be able to say, it's not that we're giving up hope. It's that we're transitioning what we're hoping for. Right. So we're hoping for for the end of life example. We're hoping for comfort. We're, we're hoping for control. We're hoping for the conversations that you need and want to have because we're never giving up hope.
0: Right. And the things that you want to say this, you know, the, here, here is a prompt. This is sort of the two by four across the face saying it's time because you may not have more time and if a miracle happens and that time is given, you haven't really lost anything. As a matter of fact, you've probably strengthened your relationships, right I, I just I applaud that because as I said, I mean seven and a half years working in the field and I did eight and a half years working in AIDS before that, you know and having this, these conversations, um, it was a little bit more cut and dried there. When I started it was early on in the AIDS epidemic and people it was a death sentence. So people once they got the diagnosis, they would come to us for social services and they already kind of knew that but you know trying to help them navigate uh and i i just i have so much respect for the fact that you can incorporate this to the point where it is a value for you because mm-hmm. again even though i did it for so long it's still not easy for me and it's i i don't want to say it's it's not a value for me but it's it's obviously not as powerful for me as it is for you and i thank god for people like you right yeah. thank goodness that We can be drawn into conversations that are authentic and caring and loving and not be made to feel awkward. Because I think that that ends up happening, right? When the person facilitating a discussion feels awkward and thus then the conversation's going to be awkward.
2: Sure. To be able to push through the fear and then yeah. not the fear to be that, that barrier that keeps us from being able to make choices and, and have that control.
1: I think though, Kara, working with you um, at Mary Birch, like you, you truly have a gift. Your gift is in sitting with the dis- discomfort, the uncomfortable feelings, the hard feelings and what you taught me you were there on my first first week <clears throat> working with um obviously babies that pass away and how to be not only kind and gentle but to also be authentic in a very difficult tragic situation and i think it takes like, a gift to be able to do that and yeah it's it's really impressive because many people can't you know
2: thank you i never know what to say when people say that
1: <laughs> but it's true <laughs> like what like, and I don't know how descriptive I should get, but I specifically remember my first, the first baby that had passed and the family wanted to see their baby. I had never ever experienced anything like that personally or professionally before. And I remember you walking me through the process of having this family be with their baby in the most intimate, most saddest times and your level of calmness and just ability to be in the present was so amazing that, and I learned that from you because it does, it's a gift and it takes a special skill and type of person to be able to do that in the most hardest times.
2: And I loved that work so much and loved mm-hmm. being able to give families that opportunity. Right? I loved being able to encourage them because mm-hmm. they, so often that initial instinct is, no, I don't want to see my baby because mm-hmm. I'm terrified of that, right? And I don't want that to be the image that I have in my, in my mind. And what we know is that people don't regret those moments, right? right. They're really able to cherish that time and being able to help explain that and help give them that permission and opportunity it's just so important. So I think that's what led to the calmness and the, they just viewed it as as a gift.
0: I think one of the things that I'm seeing as a thread here is this desire to, to get people talking about those things that they don't want to talk about, how society doesn't allow for grief or discussion about the hard things, whether it's grief or sex or whatever, right? Money, <laughs> politics.
2: Other things that I love talking about. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you just don't get paid for those. So, <laughs> be able to again facilitate those discussions in a in a helpful way because
2: it um, is. The society doesn't doesn't talk right,
0: mm-hmm. and it's unfortunate that. Well, I mean, I guess it can, It it it's sort of in keeping with this consumeristic, I'm going to call it a value that col- uh, the American culture as a whole has, right? Mm-hmm. That it's about keeping up appearances, mm-hmm. having all the newest and latest gadgets or clothes or whatever, going the places that are the cool places to go. Let's go to Costa Rica because everyone's going to Costa Rica or let's go to, you know, the Bahamas or whatever. And it's tragic that we lose so much of the humanness mm-hmm. because we don't look at those moments because they scare us, mm-hmm. right? If we talk about sex, then something's going to happen In my relationship, and it's going to put a wall up rather than break a wall down. If we talk about death, I'm putting that out into the universe, Mm -hmm. and then somebody's going to die. Right. And I just, I'm just thinking how in society right now, we have so little, it feels like everything is big and out of control and spinning like, you know, I imagine the Tasmanian devil in the cartoon used, you know, that, that sort of feels like our entire country. It's like this huge tornado of, of chaos. And, you know, to have that ability to just center mm-hmm. and focus and say, hey, wait a minute, let's draw you back into what is real? What is human? We just don't have enough of that. We don't. Correct me if I'm wrong, though. People seem to manage discussing the death of their animal with friends more than they do humans, their loved ones. Like at work, I hear people talking about, oh, my cat, my dog, you know, this is what's going on, da, da, da. But I don't hear as much about my parents, my children, mm-hmm. my spouse, mm-hmm. whatever.
2: That it's a bit more socially acceptable, seemingly. to And maybe because of the perception of, of shared experience mm-hmm. that people think this is more relatable or this isn't going to upset someone else, mm-hmm. I'm allowed talk about my, my animal having died but if you bring up a parent or a friend then that might trigger something in, in someone else and it's gonna make them uncomfortable. I, I hear that all the time right from my clients who say I just I don't want to bring it up because then they get uncomfortable and I can tell they're mm-hmm. uncomfortable and I'm taking care of them and telling them it's okay as they're saying I'm so sorry and ultimately it just doesn't feel good. It's not the support. That
0: they actually need. Right. Interesting. Interesting. So I, I think I already know the answer to this because we you said it kind of up front, but is there a time when your values came in conflict with what was happening around you? And what did you do about it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think as we've been discussing, it's kind of like the value in conflict with the greater society.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: We don't talk about these things, so being the one who brings it up, being the one who says, let's talk about this, then I think there is kind of a a constant level of of discord or of Mm -hmm. conflict in that way.
0: Uh, you don't become the persona non grata, do you? In a party situation, <laughs> it's like here I'm. I'm starting this club because everyone else in my old club said, "No, nah, don't talk to her. She's going to talk to you about these crazy things."
2: <laughs> she's going she's to ask if you have a, a trust set up. She's <laughs> going to. <laughs> have you done she's your durable power? You, I mean, the amount of people that I've made cry at parties, and, and then they tease me about it later. Like you made me cry, and you had my own party, and. All I did was say, I, I heard your mom died. Um, I'm sad yeah. to hear. How are you actually doing?
1: Right. And, totally.
2: <laughs> because we shouldn't ignore it. Right?
1: You're right. We
2: shouldn't ignore it. Um, it's just so much easier to ignore it. And because most other people ignore it.
0: Yeah. I, I think one of the things that I, one of the hopes of this podcast for me would be that people can have a few moments of touching base. And coming back to their humanness, understanding other people by hearing what they have to say. And to know that there's nothing wrong with asking, how are you really doing? Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're not trying to avoid, then, you know, as you know, it becomes a lot less of a problem Mm -hmm. in the long run. Let's just move through it, allow ourselves to move through things and, and. We have a lot more energy to put elsewhere. Yeah.
2: Yes. And and so often I hear people saying all the things that weren't so helpful that people did or said. Okay. And I always ask, What did you need to say? And it's exactly what you said. They need people to be saying, How are you really? Mm-hmm. And being open to hear the answer. Mm-hmm it's giving them permission to not be okay and not setting the expectation, right? That they
1: should be. Right. I think so often in our society that it's it's not okay to be not okay, that we're not allowed to be sad and depressed and to grieve because it, it's not okay. Like- Because well, we it, it hurts other people. It makes
0: other it people does. uncomfortable. Well,
1: right, and, and I think that's why people avoid the questions like, how are you really doing? Because truthfully, they're not comfortable with dealing with grief and loss and whatever is going on for them. So they choose to just not deal with it. Um, and I think you're right. It creates a, a bigger problem. People can't heal. And and what grow. Happens, yeah.
2: yeah, absolutely. I mean, what, what happens then I think is we've got this cascade of perception mm-hmm. that people are saying I'm okay, which mm-hmm. then sets the example that if this happens to me, I will be okay, or I should be okay, we do this in relationships too, right? We try to put on this shiny face of my relationship. It's wonderful, and I have this incredible partner and things are great, when in truth, it's really hard and people are struggling. And it's not until we talk openly about that that you hear everyone else saying, oh, yeah, no, that's, that's actually, yeah, that's actually going on for me too.
1: You know, just one other, it segues into this, but I remember, um, facilitating the postpartum depression group, 11, whatever, 11 years ago. And it was this exact thing. It was grief and loss in relation to moms, not really expecting how difficult and how hard parenting really is. It was breaking the barrier. Um, and the illusion that things were supposed to be perfect, that they love their baby 24 seven. And it was going to be amazing all the time. And it turned out it wasn't, it's 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 okay. The women came together and we're just like, it does, it sucks. Sometimes I'm exhausted. This is way too hard. And it was, it, it was that place where they felt safe enough to tell the truth and be honest and be authentic, you know? And I'm wondering, this is what I love about this podcast
0: too. We start with the individual, right? And then it just <laughs> becomes this big, huge cultural, societal human thing because that's what it is. It's a collective. We are all in this together and we're all individually approaching it in a different way. It just, if we can get the word out there that it's okay. And why isn't there more, why aren't there more discussions? Why, why is a postpartum depression group, not more well attended? Why aren't more people going to therapy and talking about what they're learning in therapy? I mean, you get, you know, the random person here or there, but again, it's this cultural value that says you can't, we don't want to know. I don't really want to know how you're doing. I don't really want to know what it feels like to be suicidal. I don't really want to know what it feels like to be manic and hallucinating. Mm -hmm. I don't really want to know how it was for you to miscarry your baby.
2: Or to have cancer. Or or to have cancer. Mm Number.
0: Right. So here, listen to the Wellness Pie Shop because we're going to talk about it. (laughs) We're going to talk about it and hope people listen and hope people learn to be okay with it.
2: Well, and like I was talking about, my parents having modeled the idea of contribution and service and community, I think that is our role as well, that mm-hmm. we need to model. We need to model, hey, I'm struggling and this is what's going on. We need to show that authenticity. We need to give people that permission. Um, we need to to check in and encourage people to, to do that with us um, and encourage them to do it with each other. And I do believe that there is a bit of a social shift happening. I do think some of the younger generations are more in tune with mental health and, and openness and, and are giving each other a bit more permission but there still is the sense of I should be perfect I should I should be shiny I should um, come across in this certain way that is somewhat a realistic expectation.
0: That that's so true. That's so true. And I think that one of the gifts we give older adults is the gift of understanding that they don't give a shit anymore. Right. So, oh, they're eccentric. You know, my mom, 80 years Mm -hmm. old, you know, she can, of course she's going to be grumpy, but because she just doesn't care anymore. Why do we have to wait till we're 80 years old or 70 years old Mm -hmm. before we don't give a shit what anybody thinks? We don't. We don't, but we do. (laughs) (laughs) But we do. Because I'm raising my hand here. You know, I mean, I'm freaking Mm -hmm. almost 59 years old, which I don't know how that happened. And I still care. Mm -hmm. I still care what people think.
2: And to a certain extent, it is.
0: Well, it is as, as, as herd animals, like we are, right. Mm -hmm. We, We need to have the comfort of one another and the security. If only we could just give them that comfort. Right. Yeah. And
2: part of that is about building community too. Mm-hmm. reaching out and, and being able to, to tie those strings to each other a little tighter. Mm-hmm. So, um, we can develop that sense of, of safety. Right? So join a club, That's join great. a club.
1: <laughs> That's great. I think um, being a mom of like two girls, I think what's so important is to instill And to not talk about, but also model for them, just like you said, like the importance of community connection, how it relates to them, seeing a homeless person on the street and having empathy for them, you know, giving them water, you know, asking how their day is. Um, I think it does literally start with kids, right? And so how can we model for them how to be a kind, generous, loving individual to everybody? I think that's part of how you create a sense of community. You mean- I shouldn't
0: be screaming at the other drivers when my kids are in the car. Not. That's not good no. modeling. Oh. Oh goodness. Kara, let me ask you a question. Yeah. If there was a secret to your wellness pie, something that you find that's that works for you in uh, managing your values and incorporating them into your daily life, what would you what would you say that is? That's
2: a good question. I think I would say my community, the family, the chosen family, the connections, the people that I can go to when things are rough, the people I can call and I'm a verbal processor. So talk through whatever it is that's, that's going on. I think that is the, that's the force that kind of keeps me, right? That's the support that, that really keeps me going. And I think, honestly, I don't know if I'm answering your question here, but I want to speak to the inspiration I think that comes from my clients and the, all the people I've worked with over the years. And that I learn so much from them by seeing how they do things, how they interact in the world, how they solve their problems and negotiate really challenging times
0: well you cut out there at the very very end but (laughs) i think what i was hearing you say was the inspiration that you gather from your from the people around you your clients your friends your family and that really keeps you going i think yeah
1: it does did i answer your question
0: you absolutely answered the question yes
1: (laughs) So one, I I think what I'm what I'm going to walk away is like informed consent. You know, it is a value I've never really considered that before. You know, and so that's what I'm going to take away from this is how important it is for people to have the information they need in order to make decisions for themselves. Yeah, that's so true.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I mean, I think I'm with Samaya on this, and I think what I'm taking away is the idea of I'm going to say informed consent in a in a way that isn't just having all the information but is also informing people that it's okay to be you. Exactly. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to be hurt. It's okay to have whatever emotion it is that you're having. And I'm just going to be here.
2: Absolutely. I'm going to walk alongside.
0: I'll walk
1: alongside you and try not to judge you too much. Just right. <laughs> um, you know what um, I just thought of is you give people permission to be and feel how they want to feel in the moments that need to be felt, right? And I think the permission that we give to our clients and to people we love is one of the biggest gifts we can give them, right? To let them know, hey, it's okay. You can feel however you want to feel, you know? And I think that's what you mean by the informed consent, is that?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. I think that's a a very accurate addition to that concept.
0: I love that, I love that. I'm definitely going to take that away. Mm can i join your
1: book club
2: <laughs> yes you have to read the book there are rules oh you book. do
1: you mm. have
2: to work. okay and then you have to show up and, and actually
1: up and talk about the book
2: so <laughs> it's a little intense there are actually rules <laughs> i could
0: maybe do one it's of. it's not two. just don't a don't wine know. club oh sorry. but <laughs> what, what what kind of books are you reading
2: last month we read think again by adam grant And that was actually a really great read. I would recommend it. He's an organizational psychologist. He's the one who wrote Option B with Cheryl Sandberg, which is a book about her experience of grief after the sudden death of her husband. Um, She had two young kids at the time and they came together to write Option B. Um, And it's one that I recommend sometimes to my clients um, who are a bit out from the, the death itself, but it talks about, this is not the plan, right? This is not what I chose. This is not what I right. wanted. And how do I navigate crafting a plan B
0: for myself? Mm-hmm. And that just makes me think about as we age, about how our bodies start betraying us. I say this per- from a personal perspective. And another thing that we don't talk about in society, just how, right. you know, we're not prepared for it. We It's a youth, it's a youthful society. That's what we, we honor. We basically worship youth. And as our bodies begin to fall apart, it's something we have to hide.
2: Well, and this kind of brings about the, the work that I'm trying to do with cancer patients and their sexuality, mm-hmm. because it is absolutely more. It is absolutely just set to the side. And the, the medical community is so focused on healing the cancer or curing the cancer that this incredible loss that is often happening in the background just goes un- unnoticed and that that shift for people can be profound and don't talk about it. So I'm certainly trying to bring that much more into the light so that, that people can feel the permission to try to ask their plan B and determine what that can look like moving forward.
0: Right. Because it can be really hard when you, I mean, there it's that idea of not having a role model. You don't know, how can I base my life? There's nothing, right. I don't have anything to hold on to. There's nothing tangible that says I'm able to do this. And if you're not an entrepreneurial thinker in a sense, right. It doesn't have to be business, but it's just, how can I craft this individual life that I've never seen anything like it before? Mm -hmm. A lot of people aren't able to to manage that without being provided language or examples or something.
2: Yeah. Given permission
0: or given permission
2: that we, we didn't really touch on, you know, it's that intersection too with Mm. grief and sexuality, how Mm. we absolutely never acknowledge for people who are grieving that loss. Right. So the spouse has died. We never said, to the surviving spouse, how are you doing that you've lost your physical touch and sexual mm-hmm. connection and partnership? Yes. Yeah. A core fundamental aspect of life that mm. is, is ignored. And so those folks often feel very guilty for missing that part of mm. the relationship.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. And as you're saying that, I'm thinking of even if somebody hasn't died, but the relationship is essentially died, right? Mm-hmm. Grieving the loss of that intimacy with your partner and feeling guilty mm-hmm. by looking out, you know, if you even begin to sort of look outside.
1: Yep. So this is, we talk about grief and loss and then losing, you, you hit on so many important things, like you lose the friend that you had, that you come home to telling them how your day was or just bitching about what is going on at work, right? Losing that, losing the part where you don't have any type of physical touch anymore, that, that there's nobody there to give you a hug when when you need it. I think there's so many layers of grief and loss interwoven throughout our lives in different ways that if we don't talk about it, I think a part of us just dies. Absolutely. and so
2: also acknowledging that grief is not just about death right we mm-hmm. grieve in so many different life situations and certainly divorce is a huge that that needs to be right acknowledged for what it for what it is mm-hmm. layers of that loss
0: i think to being able to just point it out being able to name grief mm-hmm. instead of glossing over it there's there's Samaya, you just said it. There's so many times in our lives that we have grief Mm -hmm. and don't acknowledge it as such. Don't we have losses? I mean, the last year and a half, two years, how much loss have people experienced? I mean, I just think. (laughs) I mean, I think about my kids. Kara, you don't know this, but I have eight-year-old twins, a boy and a girl, and a ten-year-old. And my ten-year-old was in third grade. My twins are now in third grade, right? And just how much loss they're experiencing throughout this pandemic, how much loss I'm experiencing and all of those around us, you know, and that's just in the last two years. Mm -hmm. So things happen constantly. And unless we name it, unless we give our kids and others the language and permission, I, I don't see anything really changing.
2: And and I think there's a lot of hope in that there is the, the ability to change the trajectory there is the Mm -hmm. ability to say even as individuals i am going to be more open about this Mm -hmm. i am not going to be fearful saying yeah no i'm actually having a really shitty day today and things are tough Mm that that is an important an important step that that we can we can each
1: do i agree like The healing that comes in acknowledging and validating how difficult things are is also what helps us to move on, right, and lead more productive, healthy, you know, healthier lives and communities. And I think it's a big step that we don't take a look at a lot of times, you know.
2: It builds us closer together, right? It Mm -hmm. it strengthens the bonds of our communities when we are open and honest and vulnerable.
0: Well, Kara, thank you so much for being here with us. This has been such a great discussion. I love it.
2: Oh, thank you so much. This was really fun. First podcast ever. So
0: hopefully it won't be your last. We might have to hopefully. have you. back. Home.
2: Hopefully <laughs> yeah. I'd love it.
0: Okay. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. Oh, bye. I thought this was a great episode. I loved the informed consent and the ways that that can apply and not just mm-hmm. a document at the doctor's no, office or something like right? that. Right.
1: And that I never thought of it from that perspective before is the idea of giving people information and permission to do what they need to do with all of the, you know, with all of that.
0: It's not just medical mm-hmm. information inform-
1: right. or procedures.
0: It's, it's understanding what it all means and to be able to talk about it mm-hmm. or do what you need to do with, with, with the information that you receive, right? How are you going to process it? Give them the information, give them the consent to process it in any way they need to.
1: Right, I think the idea of having all the information, good and bad, is what she's basically saying: is Mm -hmm. you need to hear all of it, you You need to hear all of it, and that way you can make the best possible decision for
0: yourself. Right. I mean, I think that's the informed part, and then the consent part is, and you have the permission.
1: That's right to control that the way that absolutely to do make the decision you want to make for yourself, Mm -hmm. or to feel a certain way, or Mm -hmm. yeah, all the other things that were we're not allowed to do. Right. Or feel like we're not allowed to do. Thank you.
0: And for our listeners, like us on Facebook, check us out on Instagram, follow us and it's I will see you the next time on the wellness pie shop. Sounds good. Take care. Right. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.